Okay, and welcome everybody to another special edition uh, We Do Science podcast, Guru Performance We Do Science podcast for the Epic Fitness Summit. Today I have Gary Taubes. Uh, hi, Gary. Hi, Laurel. How are you? I'm very good. So we've just been chatting off air just now, and I know that um, you're over in California, where I know you've been having some uh, little bit of tropical excitement with your weather. Um, and uh, of course, I'm in uh, dark, gloomy, cold, freezing cold London right now. Um, but what we are going to do is uh, warm up the topic a bit by getting into um, a, a topic I'm personally fascinated by, um, mainly because I'm a, a performance nutritionist, sports nutritionist. I work a lot with people with weight management and that sort of thing. So this topic is always going to be one that that, that comes up. Um, you are very well known uh, for having a particular point of view on this, uh, uh, and you've developed uh, your own uh, hypothesis on this, which is, um, we'll get into this in a minute, but it's largely along the lines of, you know, carbohydrates um, and the significance that it that it may have in um, uh, obesity and or um, insulin as a, as a factor in that. We can just quickly chat about that in a second. But just, uh, I'm pretty sure... Everyone knows who you are because all of our listeners don't live under a rock. But for those that do live under a rock, uh, Gary Taubes <coughs> is an investigative uh, scientific journalist, uh, which I think is is a title. You've got many things that you've done and, and you've certainly written an, a lot of um, huge selling books on various topics, uh, but related to what we're going to talk about and the topic that you're going to be debating at the Epic Summit, Epic Summit, uh, Epic Fitness Summit in the UK in May next year with Alan Aragon will be very much on this this topic of carbohydrates um, from you know or is it caloric express uh, uh, caloric excess um, and how does that influence obesity and and so on and and your best selling books really do help to represent how popular a topic your side of the fence is particularly the involvement that that carbohydrates in its various form and insulin and everything might have on this and and of course your books have achieved the lofty heights of uh am i right in saying uh, new york times bestsellers and all that stuff yes but that's actually easier uh it's not not as hard as you would think <laughs> the bottom of the list for you know, one week, you're officially a New York Times bestseller. Brilliant. Well, look, the point, though, is, and I've, <clears throat> I, I, I've hung around a lot with scientists who, you know, do a lot of publishing of their research. But, of course, um, as amazing as their research is and, you know, goes through that whole peer review process and so on, it can often get locked away into, you know, scientific journals that require, you know, specialist subscriptions to that are, that are uh, uh, pretty prohibitive in terms of access to the general public. So, of course, books, uh, the internet, blogs, those sorts of things tend to be much more widely circulated. And uh, it's always interesting to see how, you know, textbooks, or sorry, how books uh, can predominate, um, you know, what, what's out there in terms of what people have read and heard and understood. So it's an extremely powerful tool to deliver information and um obviously that's something that that you're very good at and it's it, it's you know it's an area that um i think i think for all the the debate and the the craziness and and i know that 
that you've you've been on both sides of, of this in terms of on the one hand you can be um, you know sort of put up on a pedestal as as being um, sort of a superhero for for the information on the other hand you've got people throwing tomatoes at you <laughs> so it must be a it must be a pretty interesting experience and I think it is a topic and we've said this in previous podcasts on on a on on this topic that that there are a couple of things couple of areas you can get into that people can really get into fisticuffs over and this is definitely one of them um so um i'm pleased to say you and i will not be getting into fisticuffs over this i've certainly got my points of view which um to be fair differ from yours but i think that that i'd love to explore what you know what you've what you've got to say on this and and to remind folks that they can actually hear you debate this with Alan Aragon in the UK at the Epic Fitness Summit. But, well, I mean, can you just give us a little bit of background behind, you know, why you why you got into this? What led you into this sort of area of 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 of, of research that led you to write these books? Okay, well, thanks. Yeah, so my background was in uh, in actually in physics and uh, uh, journalism. And uh, through the 1980s, I was a uh, well, an investigative science journalist who said I actually I had the opportunity for my first two books to spend a significant amount of time with uh, physicists and chemists who had discovered non-existent elementary particles. Mm. So uh, they screwed up in effect while I was writing books about them, and in the process of that, I got a very good education from some brilliant experimental scientists and, and how to think critically and scientifically and what it took to get the right answer in science. And I became obsessed with this question of issue of how easy it is to make mistakes to get the wrong answer and how meticulous and rigorous you have to be to get to do it right. And in the early nineties some of my <coughs> excuse me, some of my friends in the physics community suggested I look into issues in public health. They basically they said if you're interested in what they called pathological science, which is a science of things that aren't so, I should look at public health because that science is terrible. Mm. <clears throat> so I began uh, with this question of whether electromagnetic fields cause cancer. That was the issue that my physicist friends were interested in. And uh, that took me into the uh, science of uh, observational epidemiology, uh, which was the basis of that finding. And in epidemiology, it, it seemed like you, the, the, the research involved simply didn't believe they had to do the kind of rigorous, meticulous work that my physicist friends had convinced me was absolutely necessary to get the right answer. So I wrote a very critical piece for the journal Science that uh, has since become a sort of citation uh, uh, standout in the field and is usually always referred to when people discuss this issue of whether observational studies are capable in any way of establishing causality. And for the next few years I meandered around the field of public health and also writing about physics simultaneously and then in the late 90s I, I 
got involved in this question of whether salt causes high blood pressure. Um, I could tell that story if you want, but it's a long one. <laughs> that'll, be a, that'll be another podcast, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the gist of it is I spent about nine months working on a single magazine article for the journal Science in which I interviewed uh, 80 researchers and administrators. I even hired my own experts to have them assess the data and it turned out that the evidence that the sodium salt intake is a cause of hypertension is, is, oh, at best, very ambiguous and at worst, terrible. Mm. And uh, while I was doing that story, one of the worst scientists I'd ever had the opportunity to interview, and I interviewed what I hope were some of the worst scientists in the world in the course of my research, one of those the, I would say the five worst took credit not just for getting Americans to eat less salt, but for getting them to eat less fat and mm. putting us all on this low-fat uh, diet that we had been eating through the 1990s and getting fatter while we were doing it. Mm. And I, I literally <clears throat> I got off the phone with this fellow and I called up my editor at Science and I said, when I'm done writing about salt, I'm going to write about fat. Um, I don't know what the story is, but one of the five worst scientists I've ever interviewed in my life just told me that he was responsible for this dietary fat dogma. Mm. And the lesson of my other research was that bad scientists never get the right answer, mm. that nature isn't that kind. And so I finished the salt story, and I, with a you know, relatively complete open mind, I launched into an investigation of diet, the dietary fat dogma. That piece took me a year. I interviewed about 150 researchers and administrators to understand it. And uh, pretty much from then on in, I've been obsessed with this nutrition issue. And if what we had concluded up until the late 1990s was wrong, the question was, what's right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, do you know, oh, I mean, it's a difficult topic to get into. And I mean, I doubt you've had time to listen to any of my uh, podcast, but one word I'm I'm pretty well known for is I constantly like to use the word context, um, and I know, I, I, you know, and again that that is actually a word that if if it can be misused and abused, and you know it, it's it's an interesting one. But often people are very black and white about stuff, so when they're talking about gaining weight, you know, they often cite the calories in, calories out issue. But then again, we need to get into, you know, do we eat calories or do we eat food? Um, you know, do we, eat, you know, that, that sort of leads us to other issues like, well, do we eat carbs or do we eat foods that contain carbs? I mean, it just gets really, really complicated. Um, and I think, I think the, if it's totally fair, we should all still conclude we don't really know there's no black and white answer, yes or no. We don't actually know. But what we do know is, is we don't know. Therefore, we still need to be debating this. And, and one of the problems with the whole obesity issue is, is for so long, there's been this idea, oh, it's quite simple, just eat less. Uh, you know, burn more calories and, and consume less. And of course, that isn't, that isn't really the case, is it? I mean, that... that that I think we could all agree is 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 something we failed miserably at is this is this idea of what actually is the real true um, cause. So of course you've got people like yourself that have investigated this, and huge books have come out, and there's massive debates. And as I mentioned, people get really upset and nasty about this stuff and so on. But at the end of the day, 
we don't you know we don't know it all um so i think it's a very healthy thing that this debate has gotten as big as it has and and uh by the end of it hopefully we'll we'll really get to understand a lot more of it but um i don't you know we don't have time to to get into every facet here but do you want to just just quickly explain from your perspective and from your understanding thus far why i mean why you know why are we getting fat uh, I know I know this could be an entire book that is hours of, <laughs> of of commentary from you, but I mean, in a nutshell, can you break it down into something fairly simplistic, if if that is possible? Uh, it's certainly possible, but let me backtrack for one yeah. second. Uh, first of all, I absolutely agree with you that the answers are not known definitively, and in fact, I'm a co-founder of a not-for-profit in the United States called the Nutrition Science Initiative, which is raising tens of million, literally tens of millions of dollars to fund studies that can uh, at least hold the promise of uh, unambiguously resolving these controversies. The idea being that in 10 or 15 years, the data will be relatively clear what a healthy diet should be and what, uh, what types of diets are fattening, whatever that means, and what types of diets are not, and what we should eat to minimize morbidity and mortality, etc. So that's something that I spend a significant amount of my life pursuing because I do, do not think the answers are known. And as you say, uh, one of the issues we've been dealing with is, uh, I would say from the 1960s onward, there's been this insistence that the answers are known, that obesity is what the, the researchers will call an energy balance disorder, and that it's caused merely by taking in more calories than we expend. And I'm often accused of oversimplifying by saying that's what obesity researchers and public health authorities think. But if you go to any public health uh, website from the World Health Organization on down, and somewhere in there, if they're discussing obesity, they'll say it's caused or results from this caloric imbalance of taking in more calories. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I did in my research, again, if you go back to the very first article I wrote on this, which was a somewhat famous or infamous New York Times Magazine cover story in 2002, I have a throwaway line in it that says obesity, of course, is caused by taking in more calories than you expend. That's what I assume to be the case. Uh, it seems obvious and uh, not even worth questioning, and the fact is it does turn out to be worth questioning. Mm. Um, when I did my research on my book, I was sort of led, I would go back in time. One of the ways I do the research is to just follow the references back in time to find out what, you know, whether or not there were alternative hypotheses for what we believe, what the data were for the alternative, the competing hypotheses, what the critical thinking of the day was at the time. And as I followed the references back in time and when I started the, the research for my first book, what I learned was that prior to World War II, the virtually all meaningful medical research in fields like endocrinology and metabolism and genetics, uh, obesity, were being done in Germany and Austria. And these clinical investigators came by 1940 to embrace the theory that obesity was, in effect, a hormonal defect. Mm. That fat tissue is exquisitely well regulated by hormones, enzymes, uh, the nervous, central nervous system, and that you can't, it's just not a passive receptacle of calories. So this idea that somehow you just end up with too many calories 
in your blood, in your circulation, and that in turn ends up in your fat cells was naive and showed a kind of a mac- remarkable lack of understanding of the whole concept of homeostasis and what we had come to learn about genetics and endocrino- endocrinology. And uh, if obesity was a hormonal defect, <clears throat> by the 1960s, when the tools became available to actually measure hormones accurately in the bloodstream, uh, it became pretty clear quickly that insulin was a hormone that regulates fat accumulation. And in effect, what I've been arguing since then is that the no hypothesis of obesity, I mean, the one we should believe uh, until remarkable evidence convinces us otherwise, is that obesity is indeed a hormonal defect. It's a defect of excess fat accumulation. Fat accumulation is regulated for all intents and purposes by insulin levels in the blood. And insulin levels, for all intents and purposes, are going to be determined by the type of quality and quantity of carbohydrates you consume. Mm. And you end up with this hypothesis that carbohydrates are fattening. <clears throat> not all of them. Not you know, It depends on the form in which you consume them and the type of carbohydrate. And the fattening process happens because of the effect of these carbohydrates on the hormonal milieu that determines whether or not fat cells and fat tissue are going to take up excess calories or, or release them. Yeah. I think, I think part of the problem, I mean, this is the, at least from the way I see it, and I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a researcher. I mean, I do conduct research, but I'm, I'm more of a practitioner. Is sometimes, and I say this um, because you're, you're an American, I'm English, etc., and, of course, that immediately brings... One thought in my mind is, is although we speak um, on first appearance the same language, there are subtle differences in what you say and I say. And of course, scientists have the same thing. Um, And sometimes I, I think some of this stuff is a combination of things get lost in translation between what one person or one researcher or one practitioner says to another and, you know, scientists, journalists and so on. But also all the way down to the, the, the sort of the words and the currency that we use in this process where, of course, we're using words like insulin and, of course, we still don't know everything. We don't know everything there is to know about this stuff. And, of course, you start thinking about, well, okay, but insulin may be just part of a chain of communication. Of course, we know that insulin is involved. Uh, you know, there's, there's a set of signaling processes involved. Um, some of this regulation, which perhaps is by the brain, or is it? You know, where where does where do, where does this go right, and where does it get go? Where does it go wrong? But of course, part of my problem with this is we start talking about calories, and as I've mentioned already, I mean, we don't eat calories; we eat food. Um, and of course, we talk about calories in, calories out. We talk about thermodynamics we start going into things like the first law of thermodynamics the second law of thermodynamics does that work in a closed system well it maybe it does in a uh, mechanical model but how does that work in a human model how does that work uh, where there's environmental influences how are those factors influenced by genetics how are the genes expert like it just makes me think we kind of like we've already agreed is we just don't know enough about this stuff, which obviously is why it's great that, for example, you're 
uh, institution there is um, is pumping millions of, of dollars into research, and it's great that we're all talking about this. But do you feel? I mean, where do you feel we are in terms of our level of understanding as it pertains to the argument that exists? Because, of course, there's a lot of people standing up who, for example, oppose your points of view, your opinion, uh, and they can all be very forthright and say, well, Taubes is wrong because of this and that. But actually... When they're being kind, they phrase it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah trust me. I, I've, read, I've read some heinous stuff on the internet. You've, you've certainly taken a bashing in certain areas. And I, I just think it goes back, though, to, you know, the language and the tools. And hang on, we don't... Do we have enough evidence to even pitch an argument um, against the hypothesis? I mean, the, the fact well, me, is, is we've got a serious problem in our world. I mean... Well, that's, that's the argument we may, you know... Yeah. We have these the, the obesity epidemic, a diabetes epidemic. The numbers are skyrocketing. Mm. It's going to overwhelm our healthcare system here in the U.S. Um, one of the arguments I make is that there should be we make is that we're shocked that considering the 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 impact of this epidemic on you know individual health as well as societal uh, well-being. Uh, why aren't there investigations into the fundamental cause? Why aren't we, the, the, the government, the Centers for Disease Control here saying, look, you know, this is out of control. If this had been AIDS and we, in mid-1980s, we think we identify the cause of, the, of AIDS as the HIV virus, and then 30 years later you still have increasing rates of AIDS uh, morbidity and mortality, we'd have... Uh, teams of investigators desperately trying to figure out what we didn't understand about this, what we misunderstood about this process. And there's none of that going on in obesity. The, the, the conventional wisdom, it's a multifactorial complex disease, but ultimately it comes down to people taking in more calories than they expend. Now let me give you, you mentioned context, and that's mm. crucial. So I've been working on a book on sugar that's a couple years overdue, um, tends to eat up what time the not-for-profit doesn't. What's fascinating about sugar, if you think about what we, the way we think about sugar in modern society, it's empty calories, right? Mm. It's uh, excessive calories that, that, that don't bring any vitamins and nutrients to the diet. Therefore, that's about the worst the official wisdom will say about it. And what I've realized doing my research, um, if you the the, the birth of modern nutrition science was in literally in the late 1860s in Germany and it was the invention of calorimetry, the ability to measure, uh, well, whole body calorimetry so you could measure the energy expended by a human being. And for the next 60 years, pretty much until World War II, the science of nutrition was almost completely dominated by studies of energy expenditure, energy content of foods, and energy intake because that's what you could measure. And then vitamins and vitamin uh, uh, mineral quality of the diet because you could do studies on that and apply it to uh, disease states that you could see in the real world. So I have a book sitting next to me on my desk at the moment called A History of Nutrition and it's by one of the, the famous uh, American pre-World War II nutritionists. It dates to the 1930s and Two-thirds of the book is vitamin and mineral deficiencies, and the other third is calorimetry. Mm. And when you think about sugar as empty calories, what you're doing is you're talking about what sugar does to the human body in the context of science up until the 1930s. Energy balance, 
empty cal calories, and the empty refers to the vitamin and mineral content of sugar. And what we did, the context of our ideas about obesity and about the impact that foods have on the human body were formed in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s with the dependent upon the, the equipment that was available to ask questions, what you could do in the laboratory, and then those questions to find your answers, and you shaped your beliefs in terms of what you were studying. And all I'm arguing is that it wasn't until 1959 when similar research could be done in endocrinology with hormones, with actually what the molecules that actually have a, a biological effect in the human body, and we left that behind. So it's not actually that we need new science, although we need much better evidence to adjudicate these beliefs, but all the argument I'm making is that just as we, we know, knew enough about diabetes by the 1960s to establish that there were two general types, type 1 and type 2, they were both insulin regulatory disorders. One was too much and not enough insulin, that's type 1. One is resistance to insulin, that's type 2. Obesity and insulin, uh, obesity and diabetes are so closely associated that most researchers think type 2 diabetes is an effect caused by the process of getting fatter. And again, what I'm saying is, for reasons I explain in my books that still amaze me, the entire science, of, the, pretty much the entire science of endocrinology from 1959 to 1993, when leptin was discovered, was ignored and removed from the study of obesity. And that was a science that said, look, obesity is very closely associated with diabetes. Diabetes is an insulin regulatory disorder. Obesity is, you know, there's all the evidence you need to argue that it too is an insulin regulatory disorder. Um, and again, in my books, I very carefully document how and why this science was ignored. And it's a fascinating story. But I think for the most part, just as we understood diabetes well enough by the 1960s to treat it and in theory prevent it, if we understood obesity and the diet related to obesity, we, we should have understood obesity by then as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly get the feeling that, you know, there's, I mean, we're decades away from really getting to the bottom of this stuff. And I think the biggest shame from my perspective is is how some people feel that it, that it's a done deal and it's you know it's it's like obviously you've got one body saying well it's all down to insulin uh, uh others it's all about excessive calories and of course as as i've already said i feel it's it's more complex than that uh, but, but i mean also laurent hmm. one of the things you have to explain out there so the obesity epidemic is worldwide right hmm. Mm. Oh, absolutely, and yeah. this complex answer is interesting, but the fact that obesity is a complex multifactorial disease is a different issue than whether or not what the dietary triggers or lifestyle triggers of this disorder are. So you see, if you think about it in genetic terms, I'm going to get a little sciency here for a second, we have different genotypes all around the world. And then we have different environments, but there is some change in the environment, some environmental trigger, diet lifestyle trigger that then manifests the obese diabetic phenotype over the past 50 years all over the world, regardless of the underlying genotypes. You know, whatever your genetic origins were, 
when you start eating modern diets and living modern Western lifestyles, obesity and diabetes show up. And that's the epidemic we're talking about. And this is true in the United States and England. It's true in you know, the Inuits living near the Arctic Circle and uh, the, 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 the pastoral populations living in Kenya and Siberia. It's true in the, the South Pacific Islanders. And so something is causing obesity and diabetes and has been causing it for the past century, actually 120 years, in all these populations. And it's possible that it's a complex, you know, uh, multifactorial, well, many different uh, perfect storm of, of problems that have come together, not enough exercise, too much this, too little that, too much, you know, um, but science says we should start with simple hypotheses. That's Occam's razor. Mm. And then only complicate the hypotheses if the simple ones don't do the job. And the simple hypothesis is refined sugars and white flour. And when you, populations become westernized, they certainly increase their sugar content, sucrose and now high fructose corn syrup. Um, they tend to take their the, the traditional uh, fibrous carbohydrates that they did eat and replace them with highly refined processed you know wheat flour and this happens all over the world at more you know different paces and that's a simple hypothesis and if that's true then you have different mechanisms to explain it some people want to explain it by the gluten content of the flour and all the, the downstream effects of consuming gluten some people you know I take an endocrinological hormonal view and if it's hormones then it's pretty much going to be insulin and assuredly leptin's involved as well but you can explain it with insulin but before we embrace this sort of complex we don't really know question you have to say when we look worldwide we have the same diseases appearing everywhere and they didn't exist before mm. And we are we going to blame it on a lot of different things or say, well, in the South Pacific, it's one thing and in, in Kenya, it's another and in the Alaska, it's a third and the U.S., it's a fourth. Are we going to start from the uh, perspective that, you know, the same we see the same nutrition transition in every one of these populations yeah. And it precedes the appearance of these diseases. And that's this addition of sugar and white flour. Yeah. No, I, I, and I think I'm absolutely with you in the we've got to find a simple cause of this problem, a simple solution, at least somewhere to start with. Uh, and as you look at, as you say, as you look at all our different societies over the many decades, particularly the last 100 years or so, 100, 150 years, the sort of modernization of our food um, production and, and farming and, and so on has had a huge impact on our health, not just on obesity, even, of course. You know, but of course, we start getting into the, well, is it the chicken or the egg? And of course, it could be both the chicken and the egg. <laughs> uh, so, um, and that's where some of these debates, I think, start to go slightly awry, don't they? Where some, like, you're very much obviously behind the insulin being a huge factor. And, of course, others are going, well, hang on. Insulin is, is certainly involved, but it's just part of this sort of signaling communication process. And others are like, well, maybe it's more of a leptin issue. And, you know, I mean, where, I mean, where, where are you in that? In that, 
obviously leptin's a good sorry obviously insulin's a good place to focus particularly in its relationship to refined carbohydrates and so on but what kind of links do you see that in a sort of chicken or the egg type process with things like leptin and and the brain and you know um i have no doubts that refined sugars and carbohydrates are a huge part of this but it's kind of like well where where is this problem you know hitting us hitting us hardest well and this is it's it's kind of that's a complex question yeah the Certainly, the hormones like leptin are involved, and one one message of homeostasis is that if you if uh, these hormones play this uh, almost infinitely intricately complex dance in the human body, and you can't influence one without influencing the other, and there's probably a, a counter-regulatory hormone for every regulatory hormone, and the way I see uh, leptin's involvement is that leptin and insulin play this complex dance together, and I. I think insulin is leading the dance, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were to turn out that leptin is. But the dance that they're leading is 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 the music is the diet that they're that's yeah. being consumed. So those are the hormones that are going to be directly responding to the diet. So you eat something. I mean, there are others, right? Like ghrelin, MPYY. Sure. But as far as the relationship with fat tissue, so if you think about this, you know, I had a, a lengthy discussion with a metabolism researcher from UC Berkeley the other day who either thinks I'm a quack or doesn't understand what I'm arguing. <laughs> um, all I'm arguing is, is, you know, what you've got is this excess fat in fat cells or you have too many fat cells that have too much excess fat in it. And so we want to create a hypothesis of obesity that begins with a fat cell. Mm. So what is it that regulates a fat cell? Because if we know why a fat cell gets fat, that'll, that's the, the first-order uh, first term in our answer about why humans get fat. Mm. And so when you look at the factors that regulate the accumulation of fat in a fat cell, and I, I've mentioned this, it's... The, the hormone that primarily puts fat in fat cells and determines whether or not it's going to stay there is insulin. Because insulin is the hormone that's singling whether you've, you've, you're feeding or fasting and, and how you should release or store fuels in response. And so if you begin with this fat-centric view of the universe, you say to yourself, obesity is a disorder of excess fat accumulation, which sounds like a tautology. Um, and so obvious that it doesn't have any meaning. But if you start from that point, the next question you're likely to ask is what regulates fat accumulation? Mm. So as opposed to saying obesity is a disorder of energy balance or eating, overeating and sedentary behavior, in which case the next question you ask is what regulates appetite and the urge to be physically active? Um, and that could actually be something having to do with the availability of metabolic fuels from the fat cells, so the fat cells could be playing an active part in that regulation. But it's a very different question. Mm. And all I'm saying is if you, if you start, you know, what Marcus Aurelius said, and I know he said it because Hannibal Lecter says he said it in Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> not because I'm <laughs> professing yeah. to be a, a, a wonk here, um, you know, you start with first principles, and the first principle here is like, what's the problem? And the problem is too much fat. And the fat cell, what regulates the fat cell? Well, that's uh, pretty much insulin and a whole bunch of enzymes. Mm -hmm. Even leptin is secreted 
by the fat cell in response to the amount of fat that that fat cell mm. is storing. Now, leptin can play a very vital role because it also is picked up by the hepatocytes, the, the liver cells and muscle cells. And if leptin's going up, fat, fatty acid oxidation in those cells will go up. So, and one of the things that will control how much fat is ultimately stored in fat cells is how much fat is burned when it's released in the other cells. But if you pay attention to what's happening in the fat cells first, which our obesity research community has not done for the past 60 years, you will end up with a different way to think about the problem. And you end up with a hypothesis that basically says, oh, hey, yeah, carbohydrates are fattening, which was the conventional wisdom until the 1960s. Mm. That's, that's, so it's not that there aren't f profound effects in the brain that are relevant to how much people consume. But even I would argue even to understand those effects, you have to understand what the nutrients are doing in the periphery. Because if you don't understand what they're doing there, you don't understand the effect they might be having on the availability of metabolic fuels and the availability of whether your body thinks it's starving or feasting is going to determine how your head responds to the food you're eating. Sure. So uh, I, I, it's funny earlier you were mentioning stuff about um, indirect calorimetry and all that stuff, which is actually something that um, I do a lot of in my own lab. And I, I work with active people, athletes primarily, and uh, some of my research uh, and, and my applied research uh, is trying to get people to use substrates properly, uh, you know, get them to use fats more efficiently. Uh, use their onboard, you know, this is like a, a endurance athletes, for example, trying to get them to use fat supplies before um, onboard fat supplies uh, before they really need to be resulting to exogenous supplies of, of carbohydrates. And of course, as we all know, once you start consuming carbohydrates, like athletes do in the forms of gels or sugars or whatever, you start screwing around with fat oxidation and that sort of affects this whole process and so on but one one thing I, I have a sneaky feeling and this is where context i think becomes quite useful is the the bulk of the research behind this is is done on inactive people obese people that sort of thing it's done on animals and rats and so on who may be stuck in cages and so on but there, there's definitely i mean i've certainly seen this in my own work and i'm by no means i'm nowhere near an expert on this but i've certainly observed a fairly interesting difference between active people uh, particularly athletes of course and um, considerably less active people and of course it, it should not be forgotten that one of the most incredible medicines that exists in the world is physical activity um, and it's something that's sorely lacking in the general public as a whole do you i mean how, how do you feel that that might change the view on some of this stuff because of course the more physically active you are you do tend to tolerate carbohydrates better and i'm certainly not an advocate for consuming carbohydrates that we don't need i i'm very much into into a whole area that we would call periodization um of carbohydrates i i like the idea of athletes using the uh, uh, only only enough carbohydrates uh, for the purposes of their training sometimes not eating carbohydrates um, because that has um, certain effects when you train in a fasted state. You might want to increase things like 
you know, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, for example, which can have its benefits. But of course, if you if you want to improve the body's ability to tolerate lactic acid and or put out your, you know, your uh, the most amount of power and speed so you can actually win a race, your body know, needs to know how to use carbohydrates. So there's a place for having carbs. There's a place for not having carbs. There's certainly a place for eating the right kinds of carbs, like you say, empty calories. There's really no place for empty calories, uh, apart from maybe the strategic use of sugars in certain sports applications. But as I blabble on here, there's definitely adaptations that occur within the body that, that enables them to be more more robust in terms of their of their ability to tolerate exposure to carbohydrates. And as I inferred earlier, so many people are inactive, they're, you know, they're not trained. Do you not think that that could also be a factor, given that we form a lot of our opinions on this on the basis of the bulk of the research that's out there? But as I said, that's on people who are unfit and inactive. And maybe we're just we're just getting an incorrect view of all this. And it's like I said, it's the chicken or the egg type scenario. Well, I think that's we've just launched into the subject of another one-hour discussion. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. You know, I, yeah. I, I mean, it's funny. Many of us who find uh, this, uh, what we call this alternative hypothesis, compelling, yeah, uh, do so. And I hate to admit it because of personal experience, because it it matches our personal experience. So, for instance, and I don't like to talk about this because then people say, "Well, Taubes only believes this because he tried Atkins and somehow sure. it worked for him, and therefore he's biased." And, mm. um, but I was one of many people who just, I was a played. Football, American football in college, uh, yeah. a sport where you want to be as big as humanly possible so I could bulk up to 240. That was the heaviest I could get. Yeah. When football ended, I'm literally the heaviest I could get eating with the short of uh, you know doing performance-enhancing drugs, which we didn't do back, or at least I didn't do back then. Um, football ends, I get down to 210, which for me is uh, lean. Quite lean. I mean, my high school football playing weight was 198, and that was just natural development. Are you pretty tall, Gary? Just to put this six foot two. Yeah. Oh, okay, so, okay, that helps explain. Uh, okay, yeah. The uh, yeah. So what do we have? We're talking 100 kilos and yeah, the uh, 1.9 meters, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the. Uh, Anyway, the point is I move out to California when I'm about 30 years old. I live in Los Angeles near the beach. I work out an hour a day. It's running, uh, uh, you know, uh, rollerblading, doing the steps. There's some famous uh, set of very long steps that go down to Santa Monica Canyon. It's about 19 floors worth. Yeah, no, I know. I've been been there. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, So this was, and in Los Angeles, this is your life. You don't hang out in pubs or cafes. You exercise. Um, And, uh, you know, like everyone else, I was putting on two pounds a year, and I thought, this is my fate. Obviously, I'm very physically active. Um, And then as as an experiment, I tried a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, and I lost 25 pounds in six weeks. Mm. Um, it, fascinating observation. From my perspective, it was contrary. I'd been on diets throughout my adult life, and there are diets where you're restricting calories and you're hungry all the time, and when you go to restaurants, you stare at the plates of the people who haven't finished their meals yet, uh, um, completely obsessed with food. And here was a diet where you ate as much as you wanted, and the weight just came off. And in fact, I cut back on exercising because it was no longer necessary. 
So then you do all this five years of research, which again, actually weren't. By the time I started my book, I had fallen off the diet. I'd put the weight back on. I'd gone back to eating desserts every day. Um, the point is you can find populations, which were very hardworking populations. And I make this point in the first chapter of my airplane reading version of this argument, Why We Get Fat. Um, you can find populations that were very poor, very hard-working populations. They're out uh, oil field laborers, agricultural laborers, and they are still have high levels of obesity. Mm. And you have to ask the question, what makes them fat? And uh, I think the benefit of physical activity is that it helps us burn off the carbohydrates and, that we consume. But I don't, I, then the question would be, would it be better not to eat those carbohydrates at all and be less devoted to working out every day? Mm. And then the other issue is simply, um, oh, what is the other issue? Uh, I think physical activity, the impulse to be physically active is a sign of a healthy metabolism. Sure. So that's why, you know, kids and puppies and kittens are always jumping around and running around and rolling around. And, and when we're in our 20s, we want to be physically active. So I think these physically inactive people, and this is part of the argument being made, that that's sitting like, a, lo- like a, a, a frog on a log phenomenon, that couch potato phenomenon, is a side effect of a body that's partitioning the available fuel into fat. And not wanting to burn it for energy. And so if you deal with the partitioning problem, getting the fat out of the fat cells, the body will want to burn it and these people will have, now have the energy to be physically active. So the question we always have to ask is, is this physical activity a sign of a healthy metabolism? A metabolism that isn't accumulating excess calories as fat? Or is it something you have to do to stop your body from accumulating excess calories? And that's the kind of, those two different perspectives are how the two different hypotheses or paradigms see these problems. And that's what I'm trying to get people to be aware of and hopefully to generate studies that'll test. Yeah. No, that, uh, thank you, Gary. I, I wish we could just keep talking about this. There's so many different avenues. I know I know there's a lot of people listening to this will be agreeing and disagreeing, which is um, just the wonders and beauty of all this. And I think it's great that we can all have different ideas and opinions. And, I, you know, you're, you quite clearly have a lot of um, reasoning and rationale behind the way you think. I have my own views on this, which I um, have covered in other podcasts with other guests and I absolutely agree with you on on uh, a fair bit of what you're saying in in terms of of, of this stuff. Um, I think there's so much more we need we need to learn, and I'm looking forward to discovering that as I know you are as time goes by. So um, I know that there's going to be a, a, another angle on this, which Alan Aragon will uh, be discussing, and um, I know folks can listen to you presenting um, this and Alan and you discussing this from your different angles which will be a, a, a wonderful experience so we will be there i will certainly be there in may so i look forward to meeting you in person gary um and that of course is at the epic fitness summit in uh, may 
15th to 17th, uh, organised by the folks at Body Power UK. You can learn more about that at the Epic uh, Summit, uh, epic-summit.co.uk um, website. But um, anyway, that that's about um, that's about as much as I think we can cover in this podcast, Gary. So I appreciate all of your time. Um, folks can read more from your books, of course, which are very easily accessed. Just literally, just type in Gary Taubes, uh, and you'll you'll see loads of stuff come up. Um, what's your website, Gary? Uh, You've probably got several, I'm sure. But what's your main one? It's Gary Taubes. www.garytaubes.com. Uh, Brilliant. So that's T A U B E S, isn't it? So, now I have to ring off because I have another. No, call. no problem. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, that's all, folks. So welcome to. Uh, sorry, thank you for listening to this special edition uh, with Gary Taubes um, of the We Do Science Good Performance Epic Summit uh, podcast. I am Laurent Bannock from Good Performance, of course. If you want to learn more about. Um, the We Do Science regular podcast series with various uh, uh, lecturers and, and uh, professors and researchers and practitioners and so on, uh, as well as the special editions for the Epic Summit. Uh, please just check out guruperformance.com uh, and uh, I, Laurent Bannock, will bring back another podcast to you very soon. Thank you all. <laughs>